Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Today's lesson is from a series of messages that I preached originally at Grace Bible Church in Warren, Michigan last year for their annual Bible conference. My family and I had a great time of Bible study and fellowship with Pastor Tom Bruchet and the rest of the saints there at Grace Bible Church. And I think you'll find this to be an edifying series of lessons as we examine the divine institutions that God lays out in his word, starting right in the very first chapters of the book of Genesis. All of the rest of the divine institutions, and we're going to begin to see the other ones here in in quick succession, uh, all of the rest of those are designed for for man, especially they have to do with man living together with other men and eventually other women, right? Um, They're social type things. Marriage is a social arrangement. Um, Family is a social arrangement. Worship is a social arrangement. Government, uh, you know, joining together uh, in communities under a government is a social arrangement. Uh, but, But they really are designed to take that volition that man has and to to sort of protect it. This becomes much more important after the fall, when now you have sin, now you have that that tendency toward rebellion and, and sinfulness to have these institutions that will help shape man's volition. Okay? But even before the fall, you see, verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make an help meet for him. And so in verse 21, it says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And here you have the first wedding vows when Adam says in verse 23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now there you have the next two institutions there in in, uh, those couple of verses. You have Adam taking Eve as his wife. Um, he, He gives her a name. He says she shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. Uh, Notice that he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Right? Flesh and bone. They, they become one flesh. And so, God, you know, with Adam and Eve, God had taken Eve out of Adam, out of Adam's flesh. Then he accepts her as one flesh, and they are married. Now, Adam understands right away, probably because he, you know, he'd been observing the animals already, but he understands right away that it's not just going to be Adam and Eve. There's going to be another generation that's going to come after them. And so he says, therefore, verse 24, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. See, he understands that he and Eve are going to have children. 
It's not just going to be the two of them in a marriage, but there's going to be a family that's going to result, that's going to, to come from that marriage, and that, that, that family, the, what's implied there is that father and mother are going to raise up those children to adulthood, and, and especially the son, it says, therefore shall a man, it's going to come a point where that man is going to leave father and mother, and he's going to cleave unto his wife, and they'll become one flesh. You see? And there's going to be these generations that are going to proceed. And so, you begin there with man's volition, you see God's instituted marriage, um, that implies that's going to lead to family, alright, that, that institution. Um, now, in chapter 3, before you, you get to some of these other things, it's in chapter 3 that you have the fall of man. And here is where Adam exercises his volition, not in obedience to God, but in disobedience, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Eve eats first, but you know the Scripture lays the blame at the foot of Adam. It's not by Eve that sin entered and death by sin. It's by Adam, by one man, sin entered and death by sin. Because in that marriage that God established, first of all, they're one flesh, right? So whatever's blamed on one is, is really blamed on both. And Adam is is the head. So this marriage that's instituted at the end of chapter 2, this marriage where one man and one woman become one flesh, now there's going to be, because of the fall, there's going to be discord in that marriage. Instead of those two exercising their volition and obedience to God and, and you know submitting to one another as God would design in that marriage, now there's going to be some problems. And, and if you look at Genesis chapter 3, Come down to verse 8. Now when you get down to chapter 3, verse 8, Adam and Eve have sinned. And they've experienced for the first time guilt and shame. They instinctively start to try covering themselves up. The best thing they can find are some fig leaves. By the way, there's some symbols in that as well. The fig leaf, when you go throughout Scripture, the fig is a, a picture of religion. And what a, what a fitting picture here in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve realize they're guilty before God, and they start trying to piece together something that I'm sure didn't cover them very well, but it made them feel a little bit better, I guess, about their shame. And they start trying to piece together something of themselves to, to you know, by themselves to, to cover that up. Isn't that the same thing people do with religion, right? I mean, that's, that's what they do. Um, they, you know, they realize that they're naked. They sew these fig leaves together. And in verse 8 it says, They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Now, there's nothing surprising to them here about the Lord God walking there in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, no doubt both of them had experienced that. They had, they had walked with God, had some sort of communion with God. Of course, God's already spoken to Adam direct, directly. We've seen several places. And actually, the, the instructions in Genesis 1 that we looked at was, was addressed to both of them. So prior to this, they've had some, some communion with God where they've been able to be in His presence and, and talk with Him. And, and, you know, no doubt, had they not sinned, that's what they would have had with God here on this occasion. As He comes there walking in the garden in the cool of the day. But now, instead of them, eagerly seeking to be in the presence of God, they're hiding themselves away. You see? And 
God has a tendency, He does this all throughout His Word, the Lord Jesus Christ does it in His earthly ministry. He'll ask questions that He already knows the answer to. Um, parents do that, don't they? <laughs> ask questions you already know the answer to. That's what God does. He does it here with, with uh, Adam and Eve. He knows the answer. The question is not for God's benefit for Him to get information about what's happened. The question is for their benefit, to, for them to be able to admit what's going on. And, and so you see, um, they hid themselves amongst the trees of the garden. In verse 9 it says, The Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. You see, they know their guilt before God, and no longer after this are they going to be able to have that close communion with God. Uh, they, their whole world is, is turned upside down there. Uh, the Lord curses the serpent, of course, but when you get down to verse 16, it says, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And, and the idea there when it says he shall rule over thee is not just that it's going to be, you know, this kind of this natural headship that God had established in marriage, but now, the husband, because of his own selfish nature, see, he's going to rule, not in a, not in a benevolent way, but he's gonna, you know, he's gonna seek to have his own selfish needs met first and foremost. You see? And you see how sin corrupts those institutions. Now, uh, that, that institution of family is only going to come through sorrow. Right? He says, I'm going to multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. And you see that institution of marriage now is going to be tainted by these, these selfish, sinful individuals that are involved in it. Um, and so there's a, so there's a curse there. He, he curses man. Verse 17 says unto Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Now man, now he's still got his volition, but a big part of what man's going to have to do, instead of just having you know having the bounty of the earth freely available to him and mo before this point most of what adam did he he was just free to do what he wanted to do now he's going to have to spend a large part of his time and a large part of his effort in just providing for the very basic needs uh even just food to eat in the in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread uh that ground is going to be cursed it's not going to yield to him anymore now he was told to take dominion over over it previously, but taking dominion over it when it, you know, when it yields itself to you is very different than taking dominion over it when now it's going to be cursed and it's going to oppose you at every turn. And you're going to try and get it to, 
to uh, grow wheat or corn or whatever, and it's going to grow thorns and thistles instead. Okay, and so so man's volition now, uh, instead of instead of uh, having a great degree of freedom, he's going to have a great degree of bondage just to labor to even just meet the basic needs of life. Now, um, the verse twenty one, verse twenty one, we see a hint at another one of our institutions. Because it says, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Now I say it's a hint because it doesn't give us a lot of information. Right? It doesn't tell us where God got the skins, but they're, they're obviously animal skins. It's clear that their pieced together fig leaves were not sufficient to cover up their shame. And remember, it was their shame at this point that's separating between them and God. But God gives them something for the time being that is a, enough of a covering where they can have some degree of fellowship with Him. And it's a coat of skin, something from an animal. Uh, now I suppose it's possible that God could have just created these skins out of nothing. He, he certainly had the ability to do that. But it's more likely that some of those animals in the creation that he had created, uh, he kills them and takes their lives to provide these skins so that they can have their shame covered. It's a picture of something that would come much in the future, far in the future, a sacrifice that would be made that would atone for man's sins so that man could have fellowship with God. And you know, when you think about, when you think about some of the things that come after this, you think about Cain and Abel, for instance. And Abel was a, a keeper of the sheep. Well, if you, if you read through those chapters in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, what you find out is people weren't eating animals at this point. You don't have any mention of that until after the flood. Why is Abel keeping sheep? Because Abel's keep, Abel's, Abel's involved in the thing that God gave them to be a, a covering of their sin. And Abel brings a sacrifice, one of those sheep, that is acceptable to God, and Cain brings that, the fruit of that cursed ground, right? That, that labor, the fruit of that labor that man has to expend because of sin. It's, it's that same picture in a, a little bit different way as what you had with the two trees, right? You have, in this case, it's not law and grace, but it's works and grace, alright? And, and Abel is that's the only logical reason I can think of, unless he's just keeping those sheep because he likes them. That might be a possibility. But uh, there's the idea there that now there's got to be some some kind of a, a system through which man approaches God. He's not free to just do it as he pleases anymore. And there's the idea that there's got to be a sacrifice. And so when you get when you get farther into the book of Genesis, for instance, and Noah is offering sacrifices to God. You don't see between here and there any additional instruction that God gave about how to offer a sacrifice or what to offer or any of those things. How did Noah, why did that even come into his mind to offer sacrifice to God? Most likely back here uh, where these coats of skins are provided and you know Noah's there offering sacrifices and you have that going on long before it's institutionalized in the law. And so you have, you have the beginnings of a system of worship there and a means of worship, a means for man to to approach God. And it always involves a sacrifice. And all throughout the Bible, after the fall, it always involves a sacrifice. 
And we can thank God today that we have the reality that these things were just a picture of. We have the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ, the once for all sacrifice, has shed his blood so that we don't just have some skin covering that just covers us for the time being until it wears out and we have to replace it. Uh, we don't just have some some makeshift thing. And, and, and certainly we don't have just some fig leaves stitched together, right? We've got that that perfect atonement that's available in Christ. And when we talk about these institutions through the rest of the weekend, we're not just going to, to talk about their... I mean, we've looked at, at a lot of their origin. We haven't talked yet about um, about civil government. But you see the origins of these things in, in Genesis, and these things are corrupted by the fall, but in Jesus Christ, and for the member of the body of Christ, there is a, a responsibility to reclaim these institutions. And not to, as, as some people believe, you know, there's kind of a, I, I gave the, I gave the title for the, for this series of messages as being restoration. And you know, a lot of people that would talk about that term restoration, they kind of have the idea that somehow we as Christians need to take over the world and, and impose, uh, you know, biblical standards for these institutions on the world. Well, good luck. Good luck with that. Uh, Bible doesn't tell you that's what you're supposed to do. But as believers in Christ and as members of the body of Christ, we have the opportunity to, to um, experience these institutions and be involved in these institutions much in the way they ought to be. Now, we still are in a sin-cursed world. It's not like they were b- before the fall, right? But, but uh, we are a new creation in Christ that's created in righteousness and true holiness. You see, and if that's the case, then as we put that that uh, song that was sung earlier about the old coat and the new coat, there's an old man and a new man, right? When we put on the new man, it's not something that just affects me as an individual. It's something that affects my relationships. It affects my relationship with my wife, with my children. It affects my relationship with, you know, other other people, other believers. It affects my relationship with the entire community and nation around me. Right, and and it reclaims and in a sense restores those things, or at least we have a, we can have a restored view of how they are to function. Now, the the fourth institution that we haven't talked about yet, or really really fit, I'm talking about five, right? Because I'm adding worship in there as well. But um, that institution, really, you don't begin to see clearly until you get to Genesis chapter ten. All right. Now, if you think about it, in the Garden of Eden, when it's just Adam and Eve, family is is about the large. That's the largest social organization that you have. There's no need for anything beyond that because there is. You know, you don't need you don't need a a, a national government in addition to family because it's just Adam and Eve, and later their children, and you know, just a, a few generations. But when you get several generations down the line, and you get into Genesis chapter ten you begin to see the Word of God mentioning nations, all right? And you realize that when you're going from Genesis chapter 3 down to Genesis 10, you're talking about a long period of time. There's been many generations that pass during that time. But if you see in um, Genesis chapter 10, for instance, in verse 5, now it mentions several several uh, 
men there in the verses previous, descendants now of Noah and his sons. And it says in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 10, By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families, in their nations. Now, the fact that it tells you in Genesis 10.5 that they're divided after their tongues, um, that tells you that really Genesis 10.5 is taking place after the events in chapter 11 where those tongues are, are separated out. Okay, And, and here in, in Genesis 10 especially, as it mentions nations, it uses... That there's, there's kind of a, a formula there. It talks about their lands, their tongue, their families, and then it says in their nations. And you know, those are, those are the things really that, that make up an organic nation. Now, today, as, especially as Americans, you know, the nation we live in is very different than most nations in the world. But, but even today, most nations in the world are, um, fairly closely related to each other. Most people in a nation are fairly closely related to one another. Um, again, there's, you know, because of the United States and our, and our uh, history and, and founding, it's very different here. But most nations in the world are, are yet that way. And so you have, you have land, you have a, a border, okay? You have um, their tongue, a common language. You have their family, a common a common culture that you know comes out of that that uh, similar upbringing. You see that uh, many times here, and it begins to describe these nations. in In verse nine, or verse verse eight, it says, "Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. I don't know how the name Nimrod ever came to be." A, an insult, right? When I was a kid, if you called somebody a Nimrod, that was, you weren't being complimentary to them. That, that meant they were, you know, a little slow or something. But, uh, Nimrod here is a great man, but when it says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord, what that's describing is him putting himself before the Lord. He's, he's a mighty hunter before the Lord, not in the sense that he's somehow offering his, you know, his accomplishments to God but that he's setting himself in the place of God. He's setting himself before the Lord. And, and it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. You see, there's nations and kingdoms springing up here in Genesis chapter 10, where previously, you know, it was probably families. Here you see they begin to be divided into nations. And as they divide into those nations, uh, and and of course with uh, the Tower of Babel, the dividing of the languages um, really becomes the, the the motivation for that. They separate off with people they can understand. Go to Second uh, Corinthians chapter five. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse fourteen says, "For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all." that they which lived should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And he says, we talk about these institutions, and we see how they were corrupted by sin, and we see, we look at the world around us, and we see the the uh, result of that corruption. Understand that in Christ there's reconciliation. See, these these divine institutions, without without uh, without any exception, they today are exercised in rebellion against God. Right? But God, looking at that rebellion of the world, provided in His Son a means of reconciliation. And it reconciles us as individuals. Thank God for that. Thank God for that reconciliation in Christ that we can be sons of God. Think about, think about just the import of that. We would be sons of God. Because we know who we are, if we're honest to ourselves, with ourselves. And who we are by nature is not sons of God. Not anybody God would want to claim as a son. But He calls us by His grace. He calls us sons of God. For those who have believed on Christ, that have simply trust, not have, not have done a bunch of works to make themselves better, because you can't do enough works to make yourself better. You're, you know, you're sinful by nature. That's, that's your nature. Uh, it doesn't matter how much this podium might want to be something else. It is by nature what it is. And we by nature are what we are. But, but in Christ, God's provided reconciliation for us as we are. Not that we work up to some standard in order to earn it, but He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful men and He condemned sin. right? And He provided that sacrifice. And it describes here that, that reconciliation, that He's reconciled the world unto Himself. Not just the believer. The believer's been reconciled unto God, but the world has been reconciled unto God. And it says that He's given to us the, the word of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation, to go tell people about it. Now, you understand that, that when, there's been a, when there's been some kind of a, a breakdown in a relationship, as there's been between God and man, when there's a, a breakdown in the relationship and one person decides to reconcile the other person to themselves, that relationship isn't restored until the other person agrees to be reconciled. Right? And likewise, this reconciliation that God's made available to the world uh, in fact, if you look at verse 20, it says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Well, didn't he just say he was reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them? Yes, he has, but we have to be reconciled to God. And we do that through faith in his Son. We do that through believing what Christ has done that accomplished that reconciliation, that he died for our sins. None of them were left out. Died for every one of them. The big ones and the small ones. The ones we didn't even know were sin and the ones that we thought were good works that were sin too. Right? He died for all of them. Paid the price. Was buried. Put in the grave. You know, in the Bible, you bury something to put it out of sight. And you know, It describes how Jesus Christ was in His flesh bearing that sin. Well, they took that flesh down off the cross and they put it in a grave, put it out of sight, and the next time you see him, when he comes out of that grave, he's not bearing that sin anymore. What does it tell you about where the sin's left? It's left out of sight. 
right? It's left where it belongs in the grave, the place of the dead. But Jesus rises from the dead with new life. And that's what he offers to those who trust in him. And, and I don't, I don't know most of you here. I hope to get to, get to know you better through the course of the weekend. But if there's anyone here that you don't, you know, you don't have that reconciliation. You know, you haven't trusted Christ. Um, you know, maybe you know a little bit about, about, you know, the, the events and the, and the acts that he performed, but you've never trusted that for your salvation. You don't have to come up to the front. You don't have to repeat a prayer. In fact, probably right now you've made a decision to whether to believe that or not when you when you put your trust in that that work's been finished and you know our our part is just to believe just to trust what Christ did if you've made that decision you've been reconciled to God you've obeyed that command that says be ye reconciled to God and you're a part of that new creature that new creation that verse 17 talked about because when somebody believes on Christ, God takes you and puts you into Christ. and says if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. And so these, these institutions, coming back to our topic, these institutions that are put in place soon after the original creation become a new thing when people who are part of that new creation are taking part in them. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.